it's been the same everywhere in the world. You know, the way media is manipulated and controlled by the powerful people. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you want that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. On the 19th of January 2020, we are back with our 100th episode. Now, we've actually released a lot more than 100 episodes. This is actually going to be episode number 154 in our feed. But this marks the 100th main consecutive numbered episode. And it's a bit of a milestone for us. In the same week, we marked our 100,000th download. We won't be throwing glitter and confetti, because that's not environmentally friendly, but you can imagine it and enjoy this fun little sound effect. My name is Mark, and it's a privilege to introduce today's episode. For those of you who don't know, I'm the publisher here at Climactic. And that's a new title, but I've been around from the beginning. For those of you who don't know how Climactic works, we're a collective of podcasters. That means that despite being a weekly show, no single one of us is on the hook to do an episode each and every week. We get to do shows when lightning strikes, when we get inspired, when we hear a story we want to tell, or hear about someone we want to talk to. We talk it through as a group if need be, give each other help and advice, and then go out and get the tape, either recording a live event or a sit-down chat over a cup of tea or like today's episode, a remote recording from across the world. Some of us have our own recording gear, but not everyone. So we borrow it from each other or from other podcasters. We pool our resources, we help each other out, and then we put together the show each and every week. It's a lot of fun to do a podcast this way. We don't get burnt out, we don't get overwhelmed. It becomes a stress relief rather than a reason for stress. And as I'm sure you already know, but as you're about to hear a lot more in this episode, media is really powerful and important. Whoever controls media controls the world. That was the voice of today's guest, E.R. Ali, who's a globally respected independent filmmaker. But you'll hear a lot more from E.R. shortly from our host, Tess. But just quickly here at the start of the episode, when I've got the chance, I wanted to put the call out to any of you listening who have stories of your own you'd like to tell. On this show, I've frequently referred to the climate community, but I think we're all beginning to see that we need a whole-of-society approach to tackling the climate crisis. We need to bring everyone in. And that's why we need voices and stories from all communities. We need to make the climate community big enough to fit everyone. And that's why you're warmly invited to join the Climactic Collective as an interviewer or a guest, an editor or a producer, if you've got an interest in media, there's a way you can work with us and a way that we'd love to work with you. You can find out more at climactic.fm slash workwithus and check back again in the future as we've got more coming to that page. 
Okay, now without further ado, here's host Tess Chapman with her interview with Yara Lee. Enjoy. G'day, g'day. My name is Tess Chapman, talking to you today from Climactic Podcast as one half of Seasters. Here with me today is Iara Lee, a filmmaker and founder of the Cultures of Resistance Network, which aims to unify activists, educators, artists, and farmers. Iara has produced a multitude of documentaries from different pockets of resistance around the world, including Burkina Faso, Pakistan, the Western Sahara, the Amazon, and Syria. Most recently, she has released a documentary from the Solomon Islands about the impacts of climate change and the neighbouring country's plight for independence, such as the West Papuan conflict, where Indonesia is violently occupying the western portion of Papua New Guinea. The already award-winning documentary is called Wontok's Dance of Resilience in Melanesia. And you can see the link to the trailer below. For those who have been following, you will see a familiar face in my last interviewee of Patrick Rose in the documentary as well. I very much recommend listeners view Iara and Culture of Resistance's many documentaries, which are both mentally and visually striking. So talking to us from across the Pacific in Mexico today, thank you for chatting with us, Iara. <laughs> Lovely to talk to you. <laughs> I just came from Malawi and now I'm in Mexico City talking to you in Australia and I send my love to everybody there. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Wow, you're all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about Wontok's Dance of Resilience in Melanesia and what was behind the decision to film in the Solomon Islands? Well, a lot of times I, I, I call myself like a parachute filmmaker. You know, sometimes I just land somewhere and, you know, things just happen. I was actually just invited to come screen one of my films, the Burkina Faso one, and then the Melanesian Festival, Arts and Culture Festival was happening, so I was going to attend it. And I just thought, wow, this is so interesting, you know. Here is this country, Solomon Islands, uh, celebrating the 40th anniversary of their independence from Great Britain, and uh, just next door, you know, the neighboring country, West Papua, is still occupied by Indonesia. And then New Caledonia was just going to go for a referendum about staying with France or not, you know. And I just thought, wow, this is very interesting because most people around the world don't know anything about Melanesia, including myself, you know. So for me, every time I travel is to educate myself and I make films in order to share what I learn. So I was not really prepared to make a film. I didn't have a crew or anything. So I just had my little camera. I was like, okay, so I'm going <laughs> to just go and document and start asking questions to the musicians and artists. And then one talks came to life, <laughs> obviously with the support of many collaborators, local collaborators who have been investigating and filming in different islands, states. And uh, my curiosity to go to that part of the world is because a lot of times I feel like, um, you know, if you don't travel, when you get to travel, maybe a country does not exist anymore. For example, I've been to Syria so many times and I feel so sad for the next generations that will never see Syria that I saw, you know. Same thing with Yemen. I've been to Yemen so many times and after this bombardment by Saudi Arabia, Yemen is just like bombed to smithereens and it's just so sad because it's such a beautiful amazing country and in this area in the south pacific is also the same thing i felt like oh my god i have to go because these island states are submerging and in the future they may no longer exist 
So I had this urge to go to that part of the world and learn and kind of like document and share with people around the world what I got to see. Obviously, it was just a little bit because the whole issue is very complex, but I, through one talk, I, I managed to give a little bit of a snapshot of the region. And I think this is uh, already better than nothing because people just don't know about that part of the world. Yeah, definitely. That's terrifying to think that tourism won't exist if the islands themselves and the culture don't exist. So I can understand the rush to want to um, portray that. Um, and also I found your Wontox documentary really brought into focus how climate change can also not only be a loss of culture, but it can also exacerbate conflicts such as the West Papuan conflict there. Yeah, no, it's because at the end of the day, it's all about resources. You know, I make all these films about conflict issues and it's always the same. It's, it's not about religion. It's not about, you know, any kind of philosophical thing. It's all about money. All these countries, you know, a lot of times when people, when I read like, oh, they found oil in this country, I'm like, oh, no, now this is the kiss of death, you know. And it's just very sad because a lot of these natural resources, instead of trickling down to the local people, just get siphoned and, uh, and, the, and the local people, they just suffer. But uh, in, uh, in Melanesia, you know, we have all these issues going on, but I think the most important part is to is to reiterate that, you know, this campaign in the South Pacific, the 350.org.org, they have this campaign where they say, we are not drowning, we are fighting, we are struggling. And, and this is a very important message, you know, because um, I think these cultures, they're so strong and they're so connected to nature. And, and, and it's just very, like, upsetting because they live in harmony with nature, some of these island states, they never, they don't even have cars, they don't have factories. And then you, you go to the Western world with all these coal mines and overconsumption. And we in the first world produce all this climate change and the ones that are the most innocent and pure and completely in sync with nature are the first and the, and the ones who suffer the most which is, you know, what we point out through Patrick Rowe's uh, interview in One Talks. So there's a lot of climate injustice, and that's another thing that I wanted to bring up, you know, that this, this is all about climate injustice too, you know, why people who have nothing to do with climate change are the first and the ones who suffer the most. Yeah, definitely. It's a, a sad and horrible trend that the least culpable really are feeling the worst impacts of climate change. Um, especially in Melanesia with those um, fastly rising sea levels. Um, what evidence of sea level rise or environmental refugees did you see in the Solomons? Well, I was in Honiara, so, you know, I was talking to the artists that live in all these different islands around, and some of them also come from other island states, and they were the ones telling me about how they cannot even have their crops because the water goes into the island and then salt water, you know, damages all their their food crops. And some of these islands, they're so like a flat that there is not even any place high to go. So now they're doing this migration amongst islands, you know, some, someone will come from one island and be sent to Fiji and, you know, they, they have to, and then they're building these barriers, you know, in order not, the, not to let the water creep in. But it's just, it's just very calamity because, you know, 
like we point out in the film, you know, climate refugees is the biggest issue, not only in Melanesia, but in the African continent, in Bangladesh, even in wealthy countries. And we, these wealthy governments, they're freaking out with like war refugees, but this is nothing compared to the amount of climate refugees that we're going to have. The numbers are just huge. And what are we supposed to do, you know, militarize the borders of wealthy countries or, you know, actually open the borders because this is a global issue. And this global issue has to be addressed in a global way because, you know, just like the the war refugees, you know, these European countries don't want them. But where are these people going to go when they become climate refugees? So we have to have a, a paradigm shift politically and look at the world in a humanitarian way, because I think this is actually the biggest issue, like humans lost humanity. <laughs> and this is something that we have to really campaign because it's really about extending support instead of blocking support. But I don't know how this is all going to backfire because these wealthy governments, they're just kind of militarizing the borders and uh, this is just this is not sustainable because we are going to have millions of people that will need to go somewhere and uh, it's the biggest challenge of the century and we still have politicians that deny we still have politicians that (laughs) that say this is like a lie And, uh, you know, to the point that we need... Are you talking about Australia? (laughs) Well, it's so crazy that now we have to have, like, young activists, you know. Greta from Scandinavia, she's been this, like, model because, you know, it's their future that is threatened. So I think it's it's amazing that these, these kids are, like, waking up and saying, you know, you guys have no rights to give us a completely destroyed world, you know. So I I think um, I'm feeling very hopeful because the youth is kind of like stepping in and getting very proactive, which I think that's what's going to take, you know, because a lot of the adults, they're just kind of like they surrender, you know, they're just like whatever. But the youth has to be in power and the youth has to fight because that's what they're inheriting. So we'll see, you know, we have the Pacific Warriors, you know, we have many different campaigns going on. And I think little by little people see that climate change is not an abstract thing, you know, it's a real thing. And uh, and I think this, this kind of like very concrete things that is happening in front of your eyes makes people much more aware and, and, and willing to get proactive. But we just have to push all these politicians who are in denial because they are working in cahoots with oil companies and fossil fuel companies. And uh, we really need to put a lot of pressure on the politicians, including in Australia. (laughs) Oh, definitely in Australia. I kind of liked the sentiment that climate change is a humanitarian issue that you were saying there. And I was wondering, um, because I guess I've just been focusing on the South Pacific, but you mentioned that there's environmental refugees in Bangladesh and Africa and even Europe. And I was wondering if it's a similar kind of thing where it's just this uh, movement of people and if it also was mainly the youth that were uh, acting about climate change in those countries as well. Well, I think this movement has to grow because the youth, I mean, Greta, she's from Scandinavia, and, uh, you know, we have to get the youth in Bangladesh, we have to get the youth in the African continent, we have to get the youth all over the world, and not just for climate change, for all issues, because it's always about, you know, who's going to inherit this mess, you know? 
And uh, so I am also very much passing the torch as a filmmaker. I always like to support young filmmakers so they can get the, you know, the word out and spread the seeds of hope and productivity. And uh, so we'll see, you know, I think this is a movement that just tends to grow. And now I, I think even in social media, you see all these, you know, 13-year-old indigenous activists, all these 15-year-old, you know, indigenous for, you know, uh, activists for human rights. Or So all of a sudden it's becoming a trend, you know, where kids are becoming the activists, which I think is very good because, uh, you know, we have all these activists from the 60s, Vietnam War, we have activists, the hippies, and we have all these people who are much older now. And we need to revitalize the whole like activism movement with young people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, here in Australia, um, as I guess we've kind of touched on a bit already, but we still haven't declared a climate emergency. And in fact, we're allowing more coal mines to be built. Um, and our prime minister is actually trying to outlaw boycotts and is treating climate change solely as a political issue, as you were mentioning before. So if you were in a room with our Senate, what would you say to them about their disregard for climate science and activism? And not all of our Senate is saying this, by the way, just a few key members, such as our Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Yeah, I mean, I think even the terminology has changed. You know, people used to say climate change, and I was reading some articles that now the terminology has changed. It's not climate change, it's climate emergency. <laughs> it's climate disaster. It's climate catastrophe. And, uh, you know, a lot of these politicians, they're like, oh, well, this is the cycle of life. Things have always been their way. But the acceleration and the speed of the change is just dramatic. I was in Greenland and, you know, I was like, oh, I want to see the icebergs. And all of a sudden, everything is melting. It's for real, you know. These ice sheets are melting and, and the icebergs are just collapsing. And uh, you see, you know, when National Geographic puts a camera there and then film the whole thing. And uh, I just don't see how these politicians can deny, you know, and it's not just in Australia, look at like in the United States, you know, and these coal mines are still going very strong. So I think we just have to get a lot of pressure on them because we are the numbers. We are more than 7 billion people in, the, in this world. So we have to really mobilize and I think it's going to take this mass appeal and this mass pressure in order to push these politicians to kind of like you know wake up and be like okay if we are here to you know salvage human species we have to work together but I'm really counting on the youth you know because it's just incredible that you have like teenagers who know more about climate change than you know, has a state. This is really pathetic. So I think we really need a paradigm shift as far as the governance and the governments around the world. You know, there are so many issues that we just accept year after year, but everything has to be revitalized and revamped. I mean, even the idea of like borders, even the idea of passports, even the idea of like, you know, having to have visas to move around. I mean, we are in a global situation where people should be able to move around you know freely just like we have all these multinational corporations that move around with financial money and everything why shouldn't people be allowed to move also you know 
So this, this whole paradigm shift that we have to create and address some of these basic issues is something that has to happen. And I'm really counting on the youth to push this forward. <laughs> Actually, I was quite uplifted yesterday um, listening to a podcast by another Climactic Collective member well, founder actually, um, called Climate Strike Roundtable. And he was talking to a group of three um, high school kids about the next climate strike. So I found that a little bit more uplifting. Um, if you were in a room with Australia's climate activists then, um, including the youth, maybe some of the elders, like no matter where on the activist spectrum they may lay, what would you say to them? I would just say that we have to like, you know, think about everything we do and question everything we do from the small things to the big things. And uh, I think in a way, a lot of times we are beneficiaries of all these issues and we also just point the finger to outside people. So I don't know. I try to question my own personal behavior and everything is accumulative. So I think we should all consider, you know, like, when you're flying, you know, are you doing something to offset? I mean, you know, every time I fly, I'm like, oh, I got, now I have to get a few million more trees planted. <laughs> you know, the way you use water, the way you use water, the way you use, you know, the way you produce your garbage, the way you use your gadgets. You know, in a way, it's also easy to always point fingers to the outside world, but all of us, we should question our daily behavior. And uh, I mean, back to Greta, you know, she didn't even want to fly to New York to do this whole event that she had there. She she sailed. <laughs> but every time I fly, I try to find organizations that plant trees, you know, to kind of offset that. And, uh, you know, this whole thing about the overconsumption, the way we live our lives. And I think it's, it's all about each of us, you know, kind of like considering, you know, the, the, everything we do, like when we eat, you know, beef, you know, we don't realize that this, this cattle is one of the big, biggest producers of methane gas that produces climate change as well. And, uh, yeah, this is it's really like, I believe everything is about baby steps, you know, it's about doing everything in unison with nature and uh, and all of us together because it's not about governments only, you know, but obviously we cannot uh, allow this first world to keep over-consuming and then asking people in, in poorer countries to, to not do any consumption. So we need to find some sort of like balance yeah, definitely. Um, especially with your comment about um, cattle uh, producing methane. There's different articles, but some people say between 30 to 80 times more powerful and potent at heating up the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. So it's kind of like the lesser sung about um, greenhouse gas, but definitely something worth keeping a track of. It's so true that even even the simple thing about eating meat, you know, a lot of people don't know <laughs> that just the simple fact that they are eating so much meat is producing this climate change, you know. <laughs> so there's a, there's a lot of education. There's a lot of education. But then once you get more, yourself more educated, you really have to act, which is one of the issues about all my films. You know, a lot of times I feel like, okay, people are learning, people are getting inspired, but are we able to push people to actually get proactive, which to me is the most important, you know, 
Because when people say, oh, I'm so inspired, I learned a lot. And I'm like, okay, but what are you going to do on an action level <laughs> with all you learned, you know? <laughs> and this is the, the biggest challenge, you know, as a filmmaker to actually push people to say, okay, I'm going to readdress some of my own behavior. <laughs> I mean, it's just like all this plastic water, all this meat consumption, all this flying, all this like uh, overconsumption of technology and electricity and everything, you know? It's just like too much. <laughs> Stop. Yeah, it's almost like philosophically we have to go backwards, you know? People are always pushing like, oh, how can we produce more and consume more and have a more luxurious life and more comfortable life and more convenient life. And in fact, it's, it's the other way around. How can we have less clothing, less cars, less consumption, less overeating? <laughs> then we'll be able to make some progress. <laughs> Um, speaking outside of the household into um, a more media-related global issue, um, I, with the protests in Chile, I've been reminded of the terrifying fact that I'm not actually seeing what's happening there, and I've heard it's actually far more violent than what's being portrayed here in Australia. You've travelled to some very remote places, and having seen the reality of what's in those places and then seeing the media provided by other countries, such as America or Australia... Has there ever been a moment when you've really noticed a lack of accurate portrayals of what's happening in that country, be it conflict or climate change, um, compared to what how the media is representing it in another country? Well, absolutely, and all the time. <laughs> and that's why, you know, despite climate change, I, I do encourage people to travel because you have to sometimes see firsthand what's happening on the ground because we have this explosion of information, but there's a lot of like uh, lies out there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we all know history is always told by the victory people. And uh, so a lot of times, you know, we have to travel and we have to see firsthand. Uh, in fact, my very first film, Cultures of Resistance, was this epiphany because you know, while the United States was saying, oh, we are going to be the liberators in Iraq, we are going to go and bring democracy, I, I, you know, and we had demonstrations all over the world saying no blood, no blood for oil, no war on Iraq, and the United States just went ahead and invaded Iraq. And that was a very epiphany moment in my life where I left the U.S. to go to the Middle East and try to understand from that perspective how things were seen. And, and then from that point on, it's been the same everywhere in the world. You know, the way media is manipulated and controlled by the powerful people. And in fact, I think terrorists is, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, these guys are terrorists. But I think the biggest terrorists are governments. And the more power they have, the more they are state terrorist governments, you know. So I think this is very important that all of us consuming media, that we have to have this it's questioning all the time and how things, I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, even Facebook, social media, there's so much censorship. There's so much like control, you know, like today someone was trying to post something on Instagram and, you know, you cannot use certain hashtags in support of free Palestine that they would just block you or me when I posted things about this conflict 
They would just shut down my whole profile. Media is still controlled by the very few, you know. Uh, I was a, a member of the International Council Advisory Board of National Geographic, and that got purchased by Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> I was like, I just, could, I just couldn't believe, you know, that National Geographic got purchased by Rupert Murdoch. And then a few months later, he sold it to Disney, you know. And I was like, wow, <laughs> there is no more independence in media, you know. And, and then people say, oh, Facebook is terrible censorship. I'm just going to use Instagram. And I'm like, well, Facebook bought Instagram and also bought WhatsApp. <laughs> so it's all about monopoly and it's all about controlling information. And, you know, the old cliche is true. Whoever controls media controls the world. So we, as spectators, as media consumers that read newspapers and watch TV and, and, you know, read blogs and cruise the Internet, we have to be extremely aware of that. And uh, the stories are always told in very different ways. And, uh, and it's really to cut through and, and get to the bottom of it is a lot of hard work, you know. So in a way, I, I make films in a very independent way because this is the thing, you know, if you are making films through a broadcast company or if you have people investing in your films, they will always try to, to um, censor you and the most important message will be cut. I mean, I even remember when I made the first film, Cultures of Resistance, when we were trying to sell to some TV, they would be like, oh, we love your film, but can we cut these and these and these? which it happens to be always the most important part of the film. <laughs> so I think to be independent as a media producer is, is very, very important. So that's why I make my films very low budget and very much like uh, independent. So nobody can say, cut this, cut that, cut this, cut that. And it's, it's always very sensitive issues, you know, like uh, you are always confronting very powerful governments that will try to shut you down. I mean... I make films against, you know, Morocco's occupation or Moroccan occupation of Western Sahara, which happens to be the last um, colony in, in the African continent. And most people have never heard, never heard about Western Sahara, you know, or I, I make films against Israel or U.S., very powerful countries. You know, I campaign against Saudi Arabia bombing Yemen. And, uh, you know, even West Papua, Indonesia is extremely brutal in the way they do the occupation of West Papua. But you don't hear about it, you know. So there's a lot of media blockade. And we as independent filmmakers, this is our job to, to tell stories that are completely off the radar. And, uh, and you know, like uh, I'm, I'm just very... Uh, uh, happy that we managed to make small films but show all over the world through grassroots distribution because I don't really have like a regular distributors or broadcast companies. So it's just me and a couple of assistants just sending emails every day to cultural centers, to activists, to NGOs. And we have screenings on, in the basement, we have screenings in the living room, we have screenings in the classroom, at the university, outdoors, indoors, whatever it takes. <laughs> and through this kind of grassroots, uh, you know, activism, we, we manage to show each of our films in more than 100 countries every year. So I believe, you know, we are all little ants, little, you know, hummingbirds, but together we can make a lot happen. <laughs> 
Um, in 2010 is when you released the Cultures of Resistance first documentary. Is that correct? Yeah, yes. Because in 2010, you had that awful experience with the MV Marvi Maramara. Was that involved in the Culture of Resistance documentary? Yeah, the, the Mavi Marmara, it was the Gaza Freedom Flotilla because, um, you know, I was actually, I started the American boat and then the boat broke down. So I moved to the Mavi Marmara, the Turkish boat. And that was really like a historical event because, you know, we were in the middle of international waters and uh, the Israeli commandos came in helicopters and zodiacs and rubber boats, masked, full, you know, live ammunition. And uh, all of us humanitarian activists in all these different boats coming from different countries, we kind of expected that they would try to tear gas or put us in jail. But we never thought they were just going to come in and start killing people, you know. So they shot nine people in my boat and many, many injured, and they put us in jail in Israel, and they didn't let us talk to the embassies for a couple of days. And uh, that was like a huge international scandal because we had a lot of international activists involved, you know, because when the Israeli government just kills people in, in Gaza or West Bank, you know, nobody cares. But when you have so many international people witnessing and becoming spokespeople, for the Free Palestine cause, then the world listens. So that's why I think, you know, it's important to have this kind of global activism because if it's just little pockets, nobody's going to care. But if you have Scandinavians, Americans, British, Australians, Brazilians, Koreans, Japanese, everybody seeing and witnessing, you know, then the world will listen. I mean, it's just horrendous, you know, the Israeli government uses white phosphorus, they use cluster bombs, they use all sorts of chemical weapons, and, you know, the whole world just watches on TV or flip through, you know, in the magazine, but if you have millions of people united against this kind of state terrorists, then they will have to do something about it, you know, so... This is my campaign to, to, to create global solidarity because... I feel, you know, we have this kind of globalization of bad things, but what about using globalization for positive things? So, you know, globalized solidarity, <laughs> compassion. Um, I remember reading about the MV Mahamara. Um, your crew was somehow um, able to retain some of their footage and then present it to the United Nations? Yeah, because the, the Israeli government, the first thing they did when they entered the Mavi Marmara boat, they shut down our satellites so nobody in the world could see what was going to happen there. And they obviously they confiscated all the cameras, tapes, cassettes, media cars, telephones. And I actually knew they were going to confiscate everything. So I told my cameraman, don't use the big HD card, use the small SD card, you know. And it was so chaotic but he actually remembered and he did that and then at the very end he hid these small SD cards behind the elastic of the underwear and since he was European green eyes and you know and the Israeli government was more concerned about the Muslim people and the Turkish people he was able to get through with these SD cards behind the elastic of his underwear so we were the only crew that managed to get out with the footage of what happened on that night in the middle of international waters. 
you know, all the shooting and all the less, uh, you know, the, the, the people who are injured inside the boat and us screaming, you know, stop, you know, live ammunition, stop killing us, stop violence, because we are a humanitarian activist and we are nonviolent activists. So everything got recorded and we uploaded on the Internet without cutting or just e- without editing and people were able to see all over the world what happened on that night. So that's why I think it's important, you know, sometimes to have a camera is extremely important because if you are not there, the right place at the right time, maybe people all over the world will only get the official story from strong and and powerful and state terrorist governments. How would you recommend um, for viewers regarding the media blockage and everything we've just discussed, um, would you just recommend following independent newspapers or documentarians like yourself? Or Because um, I'm shocked to hear about that National Geographic thing. What do you think is the best way to make sure you're seeing what's really out there? Yeah, we really have to dig and dig and dig and dig. <laughs> Because, I mean, as I, as I said, you know, like you say, okay, Facebook is bad, you know, they're censoring and I'm just going to use Instagram. And then you find out it's also by Facebook. Like, oh, so I'm just going to use WhatsApp. That's also by Facebook, you know. <laughs> and uh, Rupert Murdoch, he owns a lot of media outlets around the world. And, and Hollywood is run by people who are very much like, you know, <laughs> brainwashers. And so it's it's very, very difficult. And people, most of the time, they're just very gullible and very innocent. They, they would watch on TV or read on a very prestigious newspapers and say, hey, if the New York Times is saying that, it must be true. But it's not. <laughs> and this is really the reality, you know. So this kind, this kind of uh, uh, constant questioning is something that has to be part of each person because you just can't, I mean, nowadays, even, you know, even more, <laughs> you can Photoshop everything. Fake news is just the reality of everyday's life. And it's just so hard to discern what's true, what's not. And, and everything is so manipulated and everything is so biased, you know. So I think in a way, you just have to also take a position. What are you going to, you know, believe? Because you'll be bombarded by many different interpretations and, um, you know, are you going to listen to the powerful version of the story or the suffering people's version of the story? And this is also very important. I mean, there is even a book, in, uh, a history book in the U.S. written from the perspective of the, of the people. And it was, it was a totally different history book compared to the ones that you, you study in schools officially, you know. So I think this is basically what it is. Who's telling the story? And, and that's what should be questioned, you know. So, yeah, independent documentaries, independent media, independent, you know, <laughs> views of the world. And, and a lot of times also going and seeing things firsthand. Yeah, definitely. Um, Last question. Do you think you'll get to Australia for a filming of Wontok's Dance of Resilience in Melanesia? To get to uh, Australia to screen or to film? Oh, either or. You could definitely film about the Adani mines here. That is a lot of activism around that one. Yeah, I mean, I, I really hope uh, to be back in the area because, um, you know, I just touched the surface and I still want to do a lot more work in that area. 
uh, I haven't been to New Caledonia. I haven't been to West Papua physically, you know, but we have lots of work and collaborations going on with these activists there. So hopefully I get to the region and Australia is always the, the you know, the transit point. <laughs> and uh, you guys have a lot of very good underground festivals and uh, very good independent festivals. So look forward to coming to Australia in the very near future. <laughs> um, thank you so much for sharing your worldly views with us, Iara. Listeners, you can see the trailer to One Toxic Dance of Resilience in the link below. And as always, thanks to Mark and the Climactic Collective and the listener. Have a good one. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening. And from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective.